Welcome to the Jersey Arts Podcast. I'm Susan Wallner. Today I'm talking to photographer Ada Trio. Originally from the Juarez, El Paso area, she's now based in Philadelphia. On top of her many awards, she's been published in The Guardian and her work is in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Visit her website, adatrio.com, to see her photographs for yourself or see them in person at the Noise Museum's Gallery in Hamilton, where the exhibition Ada Trio, If Walls Could Talk, is on view through January 8th. But even without her photographs in front of you, Ada has stories to tell about the multiple remarkable journeys she's made to the U.S.-Mexican border in order to take these pictures. Her goal is to use photography to focus on the impact that these borders have on exploited and marginalized people and to amplify their voices. Welcome, Ada. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. I read in your bio that you grew up crossing the border between El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, Mexico. Tell me a little bit about that and how that early experience of crossing the border so often affected you. Well, I was uh, born in El Paso, Texas, but as a baby, I moved to Juarez, Mexico with my family. And then I went to school starting at sixth grade until senior year in high school. I went to school in El Paso, Texas. So I would wake up really early in the morning and go um, to school in El Paso and cross the bridge daily. How long did that take? It usually, it depends on the line of the bridge, um, but it it can be up to two to three hours. Oh my goodness. So it, it really depends on how long the line is. Sometimes there's a lot of... Um, gates that are open and the line goes a lot faster and sometimes there's only two gates i see so the cars are stuck and you did this so often how did that early experience of the border affect you well it's it was very surreal because it was crossing between a third world country mexico which is now like a developed considered a developing one and then to a first world country, to the United States, to El Paso. And it was just like this line, you know, that you cross between extreme poverty and then what you would see as America and wealth, even like the streets, for instance, when it, believe it or not, it snows uh, in the El Paso, Juarez area, because it's mountainous. So if there's a, a, let's say there's snow or heavy rain, there's big cars, in the in the ground, it will be a disaster in the Mexican side, but in the American side, because the roads were so clean and so nice, people would go on with their daily lives. The infrastructure was just completely different. Yes, everything was different. When did you decide that you wanted to take photographs of the border? When did you decide that this was an experience that you had to share? Honestly, uh, when... Donald Trump was running for office, and he made the comment demonizing, he was referring to Central Americans and Mexicans, but he, in this case, he just named Mexicans, where he said that Mexico did not bring his its best, that we brought rapists and murderers, and that we had gang members. And I knew 
having brought, being brought up in the border that that was not the case because I knew people that worked on both sides and that had come, like, they would come and work in El Paso and then go back, you know. Uh, at that time, it was easier to cross when I was growing up. Uh, the person that raised me had been, was a deportee from El Paso, and she gave me, like, enormous amount of love and care. Uh, and her life would have been completely different if she wouldn't have been deported. So I just knew after living in the area that what he was saying was not true, that Mexico actually and Central America brings people that really are hungry and want to work really hard to have a better life. It also brings asylum seekers. Right, right, people who are really escaping dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. And it is our duty after the 1951 Refugee Convention to see that those people that are applying for asylum have credible fear, not just reject them without doing a thorough investigation. So when, when did you take a photograph that made you realize that you wanted to pursue this particular story further? the story of the border, and to share it? When I, when I started photography, I inquired in shelters, I inquired in churches that would give refuge to immigrants or people that have been deported, and they did not feel comfortable for me going and photographing them. So what I did when I started is I opened that door for myself, and I went to the beginning of where uh, the journey starts for Central American refugees and uh, migrants, because they're two separate things. You know, there's the person that lives for economical reasons, and there's also the, the person that lives because they want, they are an asylum seeker, and they are completely, they're treated completely differently once they reach the border, and their rights are completely different. So I went to Tapachula, and there I started taking the train La Bestia, which is a freight train that transports migrants from the border between Guatemala and Mexico all the way to the U.S.-Mexican border, La Bestia. Which means the beast? The beast, or it's also called the train of death. It has those two names, if you look it up. And it's where migrants ride on top because the freight is for freight, it's for cargo. It's not for, for them. So everyone traveling on this train has hopped it illegally and is yes. just doing it because they have no alternative. Correct. And they don't have money for a smuggler to bring them into Mexico and take them all the way to the border. How did you get on this train? I hopped it. I got my backpack, my camera, and I, I took the journey with them. So, and it, you have to take the train when it's moving. So you have to run and naturally catch it when it's moving, but it's not moving too fast. And this is the problem with, where a lot of people lose a leg or an arm because sometimes it, it will get cut up in the rails. And it's, it, they just lose a, a, a body part. If not, they are alive. That sounds like a... A very intense experience. How how long were you on the train, and were you ever frightened? 
Yeah, uh, I was in this train for approximately a month. I did the journey for approximately a, a month. And yes, I was frightened, but not by the migrants. I was frightened by the train itself that I would, like my backpack was quite heavy. I was carrying equipment, what have you. That was one part. And then the other part is the federal police of Mexico really sometimes is corrupt. And one of those policemen, or it was actually a former military, tried to rape me. Oh, my gosh. So that was extremely frightening. It's not that I was scared of the migrants. They they actually are good people, and they protect you. And they, if you, like, are cold, they'll share a sweater. They'll swear, share the part of their blanket. They're there if you're ran out of water they'll give you a little bit of theirs they're they're very very good people it's more the military and the police that are corrupt around the train surrounding the train mm-hmm. uh and also the cartels that also kidnap migrants for uh small small amounts of money for or they'll kill them so they'll do like what is called an express kidnapping well they'll ask for the mig- they'll kidnap the migrants and they'll ask for $2,500 from a member of the family. So they'll ask for the phone number and then the member of the family will have to gather that money, let's say Honduras or Guatemala, and Western Union it to the cartel. If they don't do that, they'll kill the migrant. And since these people are traveling illegally into the country, they're considered invisible, right? So their vets go very unnoticed. And the families, although they're trying to find their families, they don't know if they're, if they're in the United States or where are they. So it's very hard for them to press charges. What was your training in photography like? How did you learn to take photographs? And were you always thinking of becoming a documentary photographer? I started with painting. I painted for over 20 years. So I have a background in art history. I have a background in composition, what works, what doesn't. And then for photography, one of my good friends is a neurosurgeon that went to Harvard and took photography as a hobby. He's brutally smart. So he was the one that started showing me a lot about what the ISO is, the aperture, this, that, very slowly, so I would get it very, very well. And we would practice together. And then I took class, continuing education classes at universities here in Philly. What I know of photography, I learned of how, what do I want to say with the, with the picture? What do I want to say with the composition? The technical part, that's easy to learn. You can put it in a YouTube and you can learn the technical stuff. It's like driving a car. But what exactly, when you take the picture, what is it that you want to say? And... How, how do you frame it? That, that is your eye. That's, that's artistic. That's different. But you choose to work in black and white, which is a mm-hmm. time-honored tradition, obviously. I love black and white. The people that I admire, like Mary Ellen Mark or Sebastian Salgado, to name a few, work in black and white. Also, in Latin America, you have to remember that colors are extremely loud. So I want when the viewer looks at the picture, not to be distracted by the pink in the background. I want the viewer to look at the eyes of the subject. How do you balance 
the right of the individual with the bigger story. I'm thinking of uh, Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother, obviously one of the most famous photographs in the world, but it's been criticized by some for failing to identify the woman and just presenting her as a, you know, a timeless Madonna. Do you ever feel like there's a tension between that or do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think you have to know your subject, but also it was a different time when Dorothy Lane was doing this work. Mm-hmm. You know, so things evolve with time, the practice changes, the style of each person, how they document, choose to document the story is very particular. In my case, it's very important that I have permission of the person, that the person, that I know the person's name, etc. Like in documentary, if you take a picture in the street of somebody, legally, you can do it because they're, they're in a public space. But as a practice, what do you feel the most comfortable with? That depends on you. Right. So it, it feels right for me to like sit down and, and talk to the person. Hey, what's your name? How do you feel like? And I have a lot of little videos. I think they were playing at, at the museum. Uh, yeah, we did have a thread of videos of like the little stories that I get of the people. And I think they're a very good compliment when somebody sees an exhibit, that they also see the person speaking a bit of what they're feeling like at that moment, what they're thinking, their name. So it's, it's part of my practice. The exhibition that's at Hamilton right now at the Noise Museum Gallery they're all individual portraits of people, and you tell the stories of the people. So what happened in the, in, in the shelter, in the migrant shelter of Juarez, was very, very special because it's something that through the years I was able to get access and was able to allow in. But then when I started taking pictures, I noticed the incredible need for a lot of the teens and children for attention because there wasn't school offered in the shelter. They had very few activities. So then I started teaching them photography because it's just so good. Wow. So the bond became even stronger because they're not only my subjects, they're my students. That's great. Have you kept in touch with them? Yeah, uh, there's a family that is now, that was accepted into the United States. They were asking for asylum, and they were accepted into the United States, and I keep in contact with them very often, and we became friends. It was it was a very beautiful friendship that, that developed from the shelter. During the pandemic, what has been happening on the border, and have you visited there at all? The shelter is now closed for everybody that's not that. Because the people that are there are in such close proximity that if one person gets it, it will be uh, now breaking the entire shelter. So I haven't been able to visit it. But we've got 10 cameras from Fuji for the project. Mm, that you're waiting to bring. That I have and that I'm waiting to bring to the shelter so we can start classes and and continue the project because it's, this is something that I want to do until I'm too old and I can't do What do people say 
when they see your photographs? What are they saying that they aren't learning by following the news? I think that it's a different conversation because it's centered more on art. Uh, the news is um, great and it informs you, but sometimes the picture won't touch you so, so like in the gut. And what I try to do, and I may not do this with every single picture, but I do it for some, is that I, I try to touch people's hearts uh, with the work, but not in a way that you feel sorry for the person. That's not my objective. My objective is to give dignity for the person, but to just feel this empathy. That's what I, I try with my work. Ada Trio, thank you so much for talking to me today. I love your photographs. They're quite emotional and important documents. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Okay. Ada Trio, If Walls Could Talk, is at the Noise Museum in Hamilton at Kramer Hall and open to the public with limited hours through January 8th. Visit noisemuseum.org for more information or to see an online version of the exhibition. For more about all of the arts in New Jersey, visit jerseyarts.com. I'm Susan Wollner. Thanks for listening. The Jersey Arts Podcast is made possible by the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, supporting excellence and engagement in the arts since 1966.